Hi, I'm Gigi, and this is the Driven Minds podcast, brought to you by Type 7. In this series, we talk to our cultural heroes who regale us with stories as to how they turn their mental struggles into mental strengths. Sophie Hollyweld and Tucker Halpern make up the dynamic musical duo, Sophie Tucker. That is spelled with an F and two Ks for everyone who wants to immediately Spotify them after. They've been nominated for two Grammys, one for their very first single, Drinky, another one for their very first album, Treehouse. That's right. Strong start. You also might recognize another song called Best Friend from the iPhone X commercial. Sophie and Tucker have had their fair share of struggles to get to where they are today, and they have emerged triumphantly. They are two of the kindest, most down-to-earth, and coolest cats on a hot tin roof that I know. They join me over the interwebs from their isolation station in West Palm Beach, Florida. So, here is my conversation with Sophie and Tucker of, you guessed it, Sophie Tucker. Also, Sophie, I love the uh, the glasses. Oh, thank you. I don't need them. She just wanted to look smart. <laughs> no, they're blue light glasses. Yeah. They're what? It's one of those, they're blue light glasses, which supposedly protects you from, you know, the type of light from electronics. But yeah. who knows whether or not that's the case. I'm like totally that person that clicks on the, if anything is bad for you on some sort of ad, I'm kind of like, oh my God, like tell me more about blue light. Oh, totally. I was trying to get one for my screen, but then I was just like, it's not, it's like 89 bucks. Like what's blue light anyway, but totally respect your process here. Actually, my doctor is the one who told me to get them. It wasn't an Instagram ad? No, but I would have (laughs) probably been caught by an Instagram ad too. So you guys have been together for what at this point? Like 290-something days. I mean, who's counting? Like five years, But that also, I mean, you guys spend so much time together. I mean, do you feel choosing a work partner or bandmate is as important as choosing a romantic partner? Could be more important. Could be more important. Because here's the thing about a bandmate and a business partner is that your entire, like, livelihood, identity, like a lot of the things that feel very personal, like they're not even about the relationship. They're about yourself. Well, not everyone's identity is from their work. Right. But ours certainly is. (laughs) And I think our, yeah, our sense of meaning, our sense of purpose, like a lot of the things that are most important to us, we rely on the other person for. And, you know, it's not like, Like, I think a lot of the times in a romantic partner or in a relationship, people are like, oh, well, you know, if we have kids or if we like if we intertwine our lives to such an extent that it would be extremely difficult to to break up or or not be together. Like, that's when it becomes really important that, you know, you're choosing the right person, et cetera. And I think for us, we've intertwined our lives so much that it is totally, you know. Different, but but very. Important. I almost think it's you're more attached. We're more like just because you're literally like contractually uh, obligated. You like, you know it. It's there's really a lot. It's many. It's actually a lot more binding. It. Like than, if I go like, and say something really stupid and everyone starts hating me because I said something awful, that ruins Sophie's career. You know what I mean. Yeah, 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 totally. But it's true. I mean, similar tenants apply in terms of work and romantic partnerships. I mean, there has to be trust. There has to be chemistry. And 
what's so interesting to me is when you guys started, I mean, you did not know each other. I mean, Sophie, you had post-grad plans to go to Brazil. Tucker somehow convinced you to stay, but there must have been something about him that you trusted, right? Like from the get-go. I'm very convincing. (sighs) He is very convincing. I think he also captured that little part of me that he knew was there and I maybe knew was there that said, I really want to try to be an artist. And... I mean, I don't think it's crazy to go on a limb and assume most people who love singing and, you know, making songs secretly want to be a rock star. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it was like the most insightful for me to look and see. I think that's everyone, whether you admit it or not, I think... And it definitely wasn't a rock star she was thinking about being, and it wasn't a dance music star she was thinking about being, but that's what I had in mind. Well, what's interesting <laughs> is at first, you know, I I remember coming to Tucker and being like, hey, Tuck, you know, I, I know that we talked about doing this course where we were going to, like, write music, um, but I just, I have to focus on my thesis. It's not really right for me. You we know, a, let's a, not do that. We had one semester left of school, and I just, like... There wasn't that many classes I wanted to, I was interested in spending time on. I was really like heavily making music, DJing parties, but I needed one more credit to graduate. So I was like, Sophie, I have this music teacher who will be our advisor and sign off on this. If we just like make an EP, we can use the songs you've written in Portuguese. Just like let me produce them and it will be a course credit because I literally needed a course credit to graduate. And um, so basically, I was like, it won't be much extra work for you. Just like, do it. And somehow I convinced her to do that also. I was like, your thesis doesn't matter at all. And <laughs> Turns out he was right. Her thesis didn't matter at all. Turns out he was right. No one's thesis matters at all. <laughs> the amount of just stress and anxiety. everyone writing a thesis. And, and everything that I put into that is just, it's like laughable now. Yeah, that's so Should've funny. Put more into our little course. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but I, I think the other thing is, I asked mutual friends. I was like, "Hey, this guy Tucker, like, I he, I felt like he was really hard to read, actually. And he, at the time, he was a, a lot more mysterious, like, mysterious and Very reserved. Mysterious. And he always wore like black leather jackets, and he, he just, yeah, I couldn't really figure him out. He's a cool guy. He's a cool guy, <laughs> exactly. And. <laughs> so I asked some people that I knew that he knew. I was like, is this, you know, is this a good idea for me? Like, is this somebody that I can trust? Is he a good guy? We only had like three mutual friends also. Yeah, but or- they all vouched for him. And so I think that was enough for me. Honestly, I'm still at like black leather jacket because your daily outfit choices are so colorful. And I mean, you guys are just like dressed up for life, and I so love and respect that. Do you guys just like own gray sweatpants? I own no. one pair of gray sweatpants. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I were you always so color? Yeah. No, I wasn't. In college, I mostly wore black. It was kind of like hipstery vibe. I'd like studded black leather jacket and stuff, but and ripped black jeans. Yeah, a lot of tight, ripped, lot of ri- very tight ripped black jeans. But most athletes, probably at most colleges, they have like sweatsuits with their teams, you know, their, it says their team on it. 
And at Brown, every team had like a similar looking sweatsuit and they were gray. And so all the athletes wear around gray sweats like all day. <laughs> and I never really did. And I was like, no, I'm not going to go look like a slob all day just because I'm on the basketball team. <laughs> and it was, I just always, I think I have something against gray sweats because of that. I was like, why do all the athletes have to not look stylish just because they're athletes? This is horseshit. Total horseshit. Total horseshit. Speaking of basketball, though, I want to touch on this because you were a hardcore b-ball player and you were on your road to the NBA and then you suddenly got trying. sick and trying to be. I mean, let's just, you would have gone there, right? <laughs> I mean, come on. And at close. least you were on the road. Would have been close. Yeah, right? Pretty been close. I definitely would have been able to play uh, European professionally if I didn't make if I didn't make the NBA. All right. So you would have been huge in Berlin. I mean, <laughs> nothing cooler than that. But you couldn't play anymore because you got sick. And you said you've had chronic fatigue and they couldn't figure out what it was. You saw tons of specialists, but you were a medical mystery, essentially. And I'm curious how you dealt with not knowing what was wrong with your body and not really having control over it. And FYI, I empathize so deeply because I had chronic fatigue as well for a year and I still don't really know what that means. Like what is chronic fatigue? I feel like they say that when they don't really know what's wrong with you. They're like, yeah, you just have chronic fatigue. Yeah. It's like an umbrella term. It could, we, we totally. could have had totally different issues, but this may be the same result from whatever it was. I also feel like we could reposition the question even to the present moment. Cause it's still true for you to some extent that yeah. you don't know. No, no, I was going to say that it's not, uh, it's definitely not resolved. It's more how I learned to live with it, really. And, um, you know, I think a couple things that I've done that have helped it were, well, for me, so for me, it was, I got mono my junior year in college, and um, I got really sick and was sort of so exhausted and bedridden, but it wouldn't go away. You know, normally, you know, your antibodies make it dormant, and then it stays in you forever, but it doesn't affect you. And for me, we were waiting for that to happen, and it just didn't happen, didn't happen. And then eventually, I had to leave school for that year, um, and then I was in bed for six or seven months. Some, some. I remember there was a couple weeks in the here and there where I felt like I was you know, okay, cool, I'm getting better. And then I, I wasn't getting better again. And they still never really understand exactly. I've had inflammation problems ever since. It definitely slowly got better from there. But there's like residual things that definitely affect my life a lot now that I'm still literally the reason I have to get off of this call at a certain time is to go talk to my doctor about blood tests I did last week about the same stuff. So it's sort of it doesn't stop. And I just try to do my best with what I'm given. You know, I know it's and hopefully I can fix it. But it could be a lot worse. Also, I know so many people are much more limited than I am. So I'm not gonna sit here and complain. Well, first, of all, I'm really sorry to hear that I totally get what it's like to just like not have any control over your body and do all the right things. And you're still kind of like, why is this happening to me? Um, and but what's interesting for me is that you you were an athlete. So, I mean, that that requires incredible dedication and determination. I mean, I can't even imagine what college training is like, but I could imagine it to be like something north of a hellscape. It was. I, I don't understand how 
we all did that. I mean, it's crazy. I was waking up at like 4 a.m. to go jog to the stadium, and then we do the stadium runs, and then we go back and lift, and then eat breakfast, and then go to class, and then go back and have practice, and then ice bath, and then like go back and lift again like at night. I mean, it was crazy. I don't know how the heck I was able to do that, or anyone is able to do that. Do you take that determination to Sophie Tucker? Yeah. Like the, oh, just yes, that athlete does. mindset. <laughs> yes, I do. Sophie, tell me what. Tucker, I don't even want to hear from you. <laughs> Sophie, how does he take it? I mean, our, it, it's changed and evolved as, like, as we've gotten to know each other and as we've you know, grown the band. But, you know, at the beginning, I remember being in the studio and we'd get into the studio at like 9, 10 p.m. at night because we basically had a, had a deal with um, the Knox, who were friends of ours. And they, they offered us their studio like at nights when they weren't working. So we would go in really late night. And I remember it's like, you know, midnight, 1 a.m. And I'm like, Tuck, I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta go to sleep, you know. And, and he would just look at me and be like, What? how could you go to sleep? Like, this isn't even half as hard as what I've been doing. Like, you can push harder. And so... I was like, we're not, like, running around. You're not, like, getting screamed at by a grown man in your face, like, spewing. Like... Like, you can write write some music. You can, like, chill out and make music while you're tired. I don't care if you're tired. But I think also... So would you stay? Um, yeah, I would. But then She I, didn't get it. it was, at first, it was so interesting. She's like, but I'm tired. That's yeah, like not course. how art is made. And I'm like, how's art made? But to, to be totally <laughs> honest, I actually think we found a middle path. Because I think there is a lot of wisdom in like sleeping and, and honoring when you need to go rest. And then knowing that when you are going to return and go full speed, that you're going to have a lot more energy to do it. And... That like, you know, I think now yeah, we do. Five years later, after we build the foundation yeah. of our career, I agree. <laughs> yeah, we do take time to do, you know, what's right for our bodies and minds. And, you know, we're not trying to push through every block. And I think that ultimately serves us for sure. Well, speaking of taking time for yourself... I was researching how often you guys tour, and I mean, the energy that must have required from you guys must have been astronomical. I mean, I I started thinking about the first job I had out of college, which was working for a magazine whose offices were in Times Square, and I remember getting off the subway at 42nd Street. And I had to have like psychological blinders on and just resolve that my body was going to be a bumper car and I was going to like beeline through flash mobs of people to get to my office. And I mean, it was like a circus out there. There were like fuzzy animal costumes or like Dolly Parton impersonators and like people selling parakeets. It was insane. And like I needed a minute to decompress every single time I got up to that office. And your touring and performances makes my commute look like a silent retreat. (laughs) (laughs) You were in like a different city every day. You crowd surfed. You were constantly interacting with people. Do you thrive off of this intensity? (laughs) I mean, first of all, there's nothing like Times Square. That is overwhelming. Overwhelming and uncalled for at all times. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I see what you're saying. And uh, the adrenaline and the love of what we do, I think, just like makes it the best job ever. I think there has been a couple... There was one tour where I was just like not sleeping well and I was getting off meds stupidly at the wrong time and it was really difficult and it was hard to get up some of the shows and but besides that which can totally happen and it's it's hard I mean you're you know you we wake up we usually we wake up early we'll go to radio stations we'll do press you know with a face on and then go back to the venue do a sound check, maybe get like an hour nap if we're lucky, but usually more interviews or something. And then, you know, maybe a dinner. And then we start warming up and do like a hour and a half workout before the show starts. And then we go and do the show and it's a full hour and a half crazy run around, scream, jump. And then shower, ice, sort of eat something get on the bus and get in your little coffin and and go to bed and then you're driving around like windy this is i'm thinking of a european tour because of the last tour we were on was a long european tour but then you go around and you drive through like switzerland mountains and it's like how are you supposed to sleep when you're driving through these little like mountains on these european roads the days that are much harder are the days when we actually will play the show and then we finish the show and then we go to the airport yeah, airport and then we tours, skip the night of sleep. Airport tours and are wake harder. up in the next city. That one's. I was just I was just reminiscing yesterday about how many just exhaustion cries I tend to have on tour. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I love it so much, but I would often get in these just like states of complete overwhelmingness, overwhelmedness, and I would cry of exhaustion many times a week. Just you know. Skipping a night of sleep is really hard. Also, I'm, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with the acronym, the HSP, the highly sensitive person, but I am certainly one of those. Yeah. Same. <laughs> and so, same girl, same. Have it, you seen the documentary on it? No. There's a documentary. The woman who coined the term highly sensitive person made a documentary. It stars Alanis Morissette. Highly recommend. Whoa. I'm definitely going to watch it. Yeah. Ever since, I mean, I've, my, my entire life, I've always known that that was me because my mom is very sensitive and like it, it helps to have kind of a, a title to be like, oh, that is why I need an hour more after the show so that I have to decompress from all the stimulation because for whatever reason, my body finds it really difficult to take it all in and then figure out how to calm down. What does the crying of exhaustion actually look and feel like to you? If this wasn't a podcast, I would just show you. <laughs> no, no. What are you, are you close? What? Oh, oh, I see your face. No, yeah, I wouldn't actually do it. I would just give, I'm giving no, a No, I mean, face. honestly, it usually <laughs> ends up. Um, I don't exhaustion like, I'll, cry. I'll probably no, but he exhaustion gets mean. <laughs> totally, he is, oh. he is totally. not pleasant. Totally, I get exhaustion snappy. Yeah. So how do you, how do you guys handle each other at that at that moment? Right, it's like Sophie's like crying, and Tucker is just like just being. A <laughs> I usually. <meanie. laughs> I usually don't. I'm not the one to go over and console her. And, like, be a shoulder to cry on. I'm usually, like, I understand. 
We always respect and understand it, I think. But I also, I always make it about something that has nothing to do with what it's actually about. You know, I'll think that it's about like some random interaction I had or some completely irrelevant thing and i'll bring it up with tucker and cry and cry and cry and go over this thing that seems like it's so important and then we almost always will kind of look at each other at the end of that and be like yep we're both we're both in it like this is how this is how i manifest my exhaustion this is how you manifest your exhaustion it has nothing to do with what we're talking about there's also been countless times i think that you know, she might even get mad or she's like goes off on me about something. And I'm like, is this really about that? And she's like, oh, I'm, like, oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> LP, we have a friend, LP, who tours with us a lot. She helps. And uh, she's a great person that I can just say, hey, go, go hug Sophie for me. <laughs> I've read that you bring twinkle lights to adorn your tour bus bed. Is there anything else that you do to make it feel more like home? I love that, by the way. Oh yeah, I I, I always bring twinkle lights for my for my bunk. I I like to bring a candle for if we're in a hotel room. I like to bring what else? I mean, <laughs> like my foam roller and um. Theragun. Always the Theragun. Um, I'm trying to think if I bring anything physical to make me feel at home other than that, though. Um, I think that's that's really about it. I don't do that stuff. But I do a lot of routine stuff that just helps me feel like I'm at home um, and helps me feel grounded, for sure. What, you know, even if they're not physical objects. I know you're sober, and that is such an amazing place to be. And I, I can't imagine what it's like touring. And I mean, I can't imagine what it's like having your schedule and drinking alcohol, you know? So it's amazing that, you know, you've, you're at this place where that's not even on your radar. And I know so many people are striving to get there. Can you tell us a bit how you got to the place you are sobriety wise? Yeah, I'm so glad I got to where I did before all of this. But it, it was kind of like um, right at the very, very, very beginning of forming the band that I completely went sober. I think f- it, it took me a couple of years to be like, oh, let me try moderation. And then that didn't work so well. <laughs> or or even when I did, you know, have alcohol, like I would end up getting a lot more hungover because my body wasn't so used to it. So it just got worse and worse as I tried to like wean off of it. But I think for me, the 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 first reason was I abused alcohol in high school. I went to high school in Italy, and so we were like, I, and and it was boarding school, and I had no idea like how to how to drink, um, so I just did it too much and made some stupid decisions. And I think you know first couple years of college, and when I was studying abroad, I made some decisions and put myself in positions that were dangerous and scary you know, with uh, sexually and emotionally. I think I put myself in both sexually and emotionally like vulnerable positions that after the fact, I knew I would not have put myself in those positions had I been sober. I know, I know. And so that was like a wake up call for me for sure. 
And then I started studying yoga and getting into meditation. And the whole purpose of those practices is to become aware and to, you know, be in your body. And then I felt like every time I had alcohol, I would be doing myself a disservice and going further away from what I was trying to do in the rest of my life. And it would make the rest of my life worse. Um, and then when we moved to New York, I was, you know, I was, I was like in this group of people. I didn't know Tucker very well. I, it was like Tuck and like probably five, six like guys. And it was like this boys club. And I, here I was in the middle of it. And like I was coming from a super not even the men that I was friends with were like not in that kind of like masculine culture at all. And so suddenly I was the only girl in this like pretty like boys club vibe. And we were going out, you know, four or five times a week. And I just knew that I couldn't afford to make any, any of those decisions that I had made before. And I think that was like, the moment where it became very strict. And I was like, I, the, I want this to work so bad and I want this career so bad and I want this life so bad and I want to be able to, you know, stay up in the studio and write. And if I even have one night of alcohol, like it, it, it could ruin it for me. I feel like that's even just such a testament to how much you love what you do, that you're not even, it's just not worth even that like one glass of wine or that one beer. And I mean, it also feels, it sounds like you found other ways to relax as well through yoga. And I know you're vegan and really dedicated to wellness. And um, I mean, that must, you must have such an intuitive understanding of your body. Yeah. I try. I no, no, no. I mean, I I love my body. <laughs> I I love doing all the things that feel like I'm I'm serving my body. And I'm I'm a super like visceral physical person and and my mind is so swayed by how my body feels. So making sure that my body feels well is really how I make sure my my mind feels well. Um and yeah, I, I am super into everything that I can do to make myself feel better. And I think it comes from a place of like wanting to nourish my body, but also like knowing how how fragile my mind can be and how fragile minds can be in general. And I'm, you know, without disclosing too much private information, like very close with um, a number of people with mental illnesses that I think also kind of shook me into feeling like I want to protect my mind at all costs and and I know how bad it can be and I've seen I've seen the most unwell minds um and I and I know how close every human is to that breaking point and and it it terrifies me beyond belief. So I literally have just figured out every possible little thing that I can do to protect myself from from ever going there myself. I really hear everything you're saying. And I think it's just so great how you guys have been so open about mental health and in all of its forms. I mean, you've also talked about getting past the stigma of mental health and acknowledging as what you're saying right now, acknowledging that everyone goes through it 
There's nothing to be ashamed of. And I'm just curious for both of you, how did this, I guess, Sophie, you, you touched on this, but Tucker, how did this become important for you to begin with? Because you've also been open about it. I mean, you guys called your 2019 tour rip shame, you know? I mean, that this really seems to be something that's that's on your mind. Yeah, I think, I think for me, mental health, is like my personal experiences is mostly with anxiety and um I've had some really bad moments of anxiety in my past and it really is the scariest thing I totally agree with Sophie just being out of control and not being able to control your own mind is is probably one of the scariest things I've ever gone through and um I think it is just so important to be open about it. I mean, so many people struggle with this, especially now with technology and with the pandemic, you know, specifically. And, you know, whether it's situational or sort of chronic, I think so many people are struggling with these things. And it, and so many people don't have the resources or the education to understand that that can there's things that can help, you know, whether it's meditation or talking to someone or SSRIs, which I fully believe in. So I think, you know, it's just a, it's a, you know, it's an imbalance. Like, you know, so many, I think there's so many people who are like, oh, like that person's just an asshole or that person is aggressive or they're rude or and I, I think it's pretty likely that that person has some issues, probably mental health related, and that they don't have to be like that. And, you know, it's a sort of a shame that they aren't in control of that. So I don't know. I just think I think it's so important. And I've seen it completely stop my life in the tra- in its tracks. Like I wasn't able to get on planes at one point I was I would get so anxious and have like panic attacks I had to stop a plane once and like get off of it because I was like freaking out and um that was right before Sophie Tucker started so it was pretty crazy that it became such a part of my identity and our identity that we were traveling the world like every day and getting on planes every day and um it just yeah, I think it's a it's a cool testament to how, you know, in like a year, y- you can really get it under control and get your life on track and not be sort of a slave to that or slave to your mind. But I also think it is, like Sophie said, it's just we're all very scarily close always to that tipping point of uh, really being fucked. <laughs> um i mean i i can't tell you how much everything you're saying resonates with me um i'm really curious how you got over your fear of flying though well it wasn't even a fear of flying it was just for some reason when i was growing up i hated flying because i'd always get motion sickness and i'd always throw up when i took flights like my whole life until i was like 13 or 14 I'd throw up once on every single flight and then be fine. 
And I always thought it was because I was motion sickness. But I think looking back on it, I was, I'd get really anxious because I was completely out of control. And uh, I would like panic and I would throw up and that's why. And it was probably less about the actual movement and stuff. But um, I don't know. It's just one of those things, I think, when you're really out of control or in an uncomfortable place. And nothing's more uncomfortable than being 30 feet up in the air in a tin can. So, But also, I mean, SSRIs, right? They are a big part of what helped. Yeah, I said that. Yeah. Yeah, I got on Prozac and, and you know, started talking to someone regularly, and uh, that helped a lot. But, you know, there's plenty of things that can trigger stuff. I think I'm not great with change and with loss, and, uh, like, going through a breakup was pretty triggering for my anxiety a bit, uh, or right at the beginning of the pandemic, and that was hard for me. And then having all that time to think about it and, like, be in my own head and not be touring and running around like we were for five years straight was, you know, tough and really sort of had to like look inside and figure it out because there was no, you know, band-aids and I couldn't even like go on other dates and, you know, meet other people. It was like we're in pandemic. So, so I think that was hard, but a good learning thing, you know, just to know I can do that. And yeah, with the help of SSRIs, <laughs> for sure. I'm curious if you guys have these kinds of conversations with people about mental health and, um, you know, just what's going on internally. I mean, I, I had such bad OCD my whole life. It was, I mean, it was the point too. I ended up in a psychiatric hospital just to deal with it. And I swear if I talked to people during that time, I'm not sure if it would have culminated with me there because I was so ashamed that I just wouldn't, I mean, I didn't tell my, my boyfriend of four years who I was going to marry, like no one knew. And there is so much power with talking about it and telling people. And I'm curious, do you have conversations with your friends? Um, just from what you're telling me, it, it seems clear that talking to someone, whether a therapist or whatnot does make a difference. We definitely named our tour R.I.P. Shame for a reason, although we later, I, I don't like the way it sounds. Like, I, I don't think a rip shame, it didn't roll off the tongue. Oh, I so, love it. <laughs> it was a theme we were really interested in, but I think as a title, we were going to name her album it, and then we were like, it just doesn't, like, flow. But that to, that to say, like, we were, we've had a ton of conversations about shame, and I think for pretty much all of the things that I've really struggled with in my life, which also, I mean, I, I know how, how privileged I am to have struggled with relatively little, you know, as a human being, homo sapien, like it, <laughs> I'm very lucky in terms of my, my level of suffering, but, um, that every human suffers, that's just, that's what it is. And I think for everything that I've really struggled with, <clears throat> talking about it has, given it less power. And I think that's just the nature of shame. I think shame, you know, helps shame, shame thrives in secrecy and shame is completely spirit killing. And, and it's awful. It's one of the worst feelings of all time. And it makes you feel so, so alone. And so I think sharing those things that you think are shameful 
is unbelievably powerful. And I'm really grateful for Tucker specifically, actually, because because we've been through so much together over the past, you know, five years and like I I we've gone through so much together. It's crazy. Um like through a, a lot of change, of through a lot of ex- like crazy experiences, like extremes in terms of like what what the other person sees of the of the other person. I think that's been a huge part of like why I think our spirits are a lot freer now than they were when we started the band, because I think we have rid ourselves of a lot of shame that w- because the other person sees sees that shame and mirrors it not a shame at all. And I think that's been enormously helpful for me, for sure. You guys have fostered such an unbelievable community that is so invested in what you do. The Freak Fam, right? Yeah. Simultaneously, I mean, you guys have to have boundaries because there are people asking for parts of you all the time. I mean, here I am asking you to be on my podcast. Like, it's like everyone always wants parts of you guys. I mean, what do your boundaries look like? And thank you for uh, not saying no to the podcast. So thank you for not making this a boundary. No, of course. <laughs> we love you. We are excited to be able to hang. I've been excited about this since you first told me about it. Oh, that means so much to me. Um, boundaries are the, the thing that, uh, I'm currently working through with my therapist <laughs> because I most certainly have an addiction to social media and like, how could I not? Because there is this beautiful, thriving, gorgeous, connected community there that I, you know, get and a lot of joy from in person <laughs> things right now because of the pandemic. Yeah. But also like, <laughs> totally. do I really need to, you know, be scrolling as much as I do? No. And does it really serve me? No. Um, and I also have a, I have a romantic partner and I think one of my challenges is having boundaries about, cause also we work and we live in the same house. So it's the three of us that live together. So it's me and Tucker and Richie, who's, who's my partner and also Tucker's best friend from college. Um, but it's important that like I set time for work and then I set time for leisure and I set time for my relationship that has nothing to do with Sophie Tucker. And often I will bring Sophie Tucker into my relationship or, you know, get a call and then completely forget what I was doing or, you know, be checking what's going on with the freak fam while I'm having my leisure time with my partner. And I think, um, (laughs) we're as a band also working on like, how do we, how do we set boundaries, but also still feel the like playfulness and joyfulness of just like working when we feel like working, but then also being like respectful of, of my partner and respectful of, you know, us as human beings and not kind of just being Sophie Tucker a hundred percent of the time and also make, carving out space for, you know, friendships and families and rom- romances. And, um, it's hard. And it gets tricky, especially because we're in a pandemic and I am pretty much Sophie Tucker is what I got all the time. And Sophie has another right. relationship to, take care of that I don't really also you know I I don't have that so it is interesting sometimes I'm like hey like let's do this and she and then it screws her and and then I'm affecting Richie 
in his relationship because I'm just we're working on doing this all the time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, we're it's, working on urgency where we're like, okay. Often, I'm a very urgent person. He's like, drop everything you're doing. You got to do this now. And and I do that to him too sometimes. But I, I do think it has come in. It's it's sort of one of those uh, things I brought over from basketball, I think. There's just like a sense of urgency. And, you know, if if we're not getting better right now, someone else is getting better than us. You know, mm-hmm. it's like there's always this athletic that competitive. idea. And I'm like super competitive and... And I think part of the work ethic and stuff from basketball is completely what separates us, I think, and why we've been able to have success. And Do you agree with this, Sophie? Yeah, I do. And it's not, you know, it's not dissimilar. It's not like I didn't come from that world at all. I mean, I've always right. been a super high achieving, like, I, w- I was an athlete until I had an injury and then decided to take a different path. But yeah, she's a really good soccer player. It's true. <laughs> yeah. What position? Uh, center mid. Nice. Me too. I love that. Center mid. I love They're that. They're always really controlling the field, very patient. Mm. You know, <laughs> not me. Striker. Striker and goalie. But actually, for everyone out there who is going through a breakup, what? Adv- how did you get over it? What advice do you have? What helped poetically mend the broken heart? For me, I relied a lot on a couple friends. I think I talked to them because to take, you know, at least the type of relationship I was in because I was traveling so much and she was traveling a lot as well. It was a lot of on the phone and on FaceTime. And then we'd see each other, you know, a couple times a month maybe. Uh, So for me, having people that I, you know, loved and who are there for me, who I'm close with, to talk to them to sort of fill that some of that time, you know, especially like when I wake up or go to sleep, I think that helped. I also think just dealing with it and actually like sitting with it and really thinking like, okay, yeah, in this scenario, she was an ass. She kind of screwed me over. But there's a lot of things I could have done better in the relationship. And there's a lot of things that probably, you know, and and why did I make those decisions? And I think it because I had other priorities that were more important to me. And that is that is what it is. And there are consequences to doing that when you have a partner, I think. So it was like learning and just talking it through and figuring it out. I talked to a therapist about it. Uh, and then dance music, fucking house music. That got me through. I love it. I DJing every day made me get out of my funk at one o'clock every day we dj'd for 272 days straight or something 267 267 and and it and the 212 i think on like day two so it was wow my so this community that was building around us called the freak fam our live streams a lot of stuff was building career-wise as I was trying to piece myself back and being able to or having the need to show up for Sophie, for the people watching and to be, you know, not a piece of shit every day, like just moping around, I think was so important for me because it it really just like got me 
to wake up every day. And then, you know, even if it was hard and it was only for 30 minutes and I had glasses and a hat on because I was worried I was going to start crying in the middle of the set, I still had to do it. And then slowly I took the glasses off. Slowly I took the hat off. Slowly I took the shirt off. <laughs> and then I'm feeling myself. And then, you know, it, like it's it all just slowly... And and then people got to watch it. Like I was open about it, so people yeah. in the freak fam were like, "Holy shit, you, Tucker's changed from a month ago to now." And then I see them say that, and I'm like, "Wow, I have like time is amazing. Like time really heals. Like you know, music really heals. Community really heals." So it was just it was just a very interesting sort of in a vacuum experiment to go through and see you know without you know other girls or other dates or you know it was really just what do I do to get me through this and it was it was interesting I'm going to ask you one more question what drives you so little story what bothers me the most about my sort of first life was that I was never able to see my full potential in basketball. I worked like 20 years at one thing to be as absolutely good as I could be and I kept getting better and kept getting better and didn't reach my potential and just wanted to see how good I could get. I was not going to be LeBron. You know, I was not going to be the best player of all time, but I wanted to see just how good I could get with my physical ability and limitations and just trying to work harder than everyone else. And I didn't get that opportunity because my body kind of failed me or made me stop. So that drives me a lot now with this because I feel really lucky to have found a second passion that I'm that I get maybe even more love and joy and excitement from and it's something I can do past the age of like 35, like basketball, you know, you, there's a real shelf life there. And I, I think, I think I might be even more made for this than that, even though I'm six, seven and, you know, coordinated and whatever. I just, I just feel like, okay, this is, I'm lucky to have a second chance. Now I want to see how good I can get and how great, how great I can be at something. That's a good answer. That is a very good answer. So I've been asking myself this question, like, I don't really know exactly which category I fall into, because I think in the past, I probably would would say I derive or I am driven by my search for meaning or like for my for wanting to make an impact in a positive way. Um, And I'm not sure whether that's like egotistical or like true, if that makes sense. But (laughs) I think my whole life I was taught that my purpose in this world is to make a positive impact and to make sure that I'm leaving the world better than if I was not in the world. I hear you. I think you guys have actually pretty pretty direct empirical evidence that you have made the world a better place from you helping fans in ways that you can't even imagine to... I mean, I know stories of people that you, your music has actually directly affected and have has really completely changed their lives. I mean, from the Staples Center to the House of Blues to winning two Grammys, do you guys ever 
just look around and are you just like, just, do you still feel like you're students at Brown and you're just like, wait, what? Um, I'm also going to correct that to nominate it for two Grammys. We've never won a Grammy, but. Why would but you I think correct the truth is- that? <laughs> I would have, ne- that's the difference between me and Sophie. I never would have corrected that. That's funny. Only if she said nominated for one, I'd say nominated for two. <laughs> I think all the time. It's not like we think, oh, we're students at Brown, but I do think we're like, we're literally, we, we understand that. Though we have made some positive impact in people's lives, there is, we are still nothing. Like in the sense that there's so much more to do and so much more for us to grow into. And I don't think we've reached our full potential at all. So we, and I think we wake up every day really, truly feeling that. I don't, I don't think... Maybe it's almost a fault that we don't really spend that much time being like, oh, look what we've done. You know, I, I don't think that that's really like our guiding uh, thought no. ever. I think we're always going to feel like a baby band who has a, such a long way to go. You know, I just think that's our mentality. Well, I hope you guys do take that moment to kiss the mirror every day because you are changing people's lives. Yeah. And um but seriously, thank you so much for being on, guys. I appreciate it immensely. And um, you guys are two of the coolest, most genuine people I know. And it it really shines through. So thanks for existing. Well, that's oh. so <laughs> nice. That was very nice. We love you. We love you. <laughs> thanks for having us. That, my friends, was Sophie and Tucker of Sophie Tucker. You can follow them at... Sophie Tucker and me at Gillian Sagansky. Oh, God, Mom. <laughs> she always texts me. <laughs> As I was saying, you can always DM me with comments and questions, and I will answer you. In the meantime, remember to drink lots of water and get outside for even five minutes today. But New Yorkers, avoid Times Square at all costs. And talk to each other. Until next time. <laughs>